our sermon times are shared with storytellers. We do this because we think there are things we need to hear that only people in the community can tell us. So the sermons have been one part sacred text with the pastor, but one part sacred story with community members. Now because Larry and Fritz are our church members, sorry Adventist Forum, they're ours. Because they're our church members and the forum is celebrating with us this weekend, we thought this would be a terrific Sabbath as we conclude one summer to hear from Larry and Fritz, particularly about a time in 1980 in Dallas and the shaping of our fundamental beliefs as a church. So that's exactly what we're gonna talk about. And um, Fritz, you're gonna go first because we would like you to give us the setup. There is a setup that got us to 1980 in Dallas. The setup began a long time before 1980. Indeed, in 1853, when James White, the editor of the Adventist Review, uh, then called the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, uh, received a query from a Seventh-day Baptist wanting to know what you Adventists believe. And in responding to that, James White uh, composed a very short statement which is now regarded by church historians as the first statement of Adventist belief. Now, there, there has been a, a long history uh, after that with some interesting events. Uh, in, in 1872, the uh, Adventist press at Battle Creek, which is where the only Adventist press at that time was, uh, issued a pamphlet containing 35 propositions titled Fundamental Principles. That's where I think we, got, we started using the word fundamental, and we haven't uh, lost that, or if your perspective is otherwise, we haven't progressed beyond it. We're still <laughs> talking about uh, fundamental beliefs. Uh, you're, you're scaring me a little bit because we're only in the 1870s. <laughs> but there, is, there was an interesting explanation which went with that 1872 uh, statement, namely, in presenting to the public this synopsis of our faith, we wish to have it distinctly understood that we have no articles of faith, creed, or discipline aside from the Bible. We do not put this forth as having any authority with our people, nor is it designed to secure uniformity among them as a system of faith, but is a brief statement of what is and has been with great unanimity held by them. Well, uh, to save time, we'll move quickly to the 1900s. In, in 1975, we've skipped over a Thank you. whole century there. Thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, I represent the impatient generations. <laughs> <laughs> in, in 1975, general conference session in Vienna uh, voted to address the need for a revision 
of the 1930 statement, which had been put together by a committee of four, uh, including the General Conference President and the editor of the Adventist Review. Well, it was felt that that state statement needed some updating. So uh, the uh, General Conference in the next few years uh, got together a small committee of which Elder Duncan Eva was chair. Uh, this was an ad hoc committee to prepare a revision. Well, uh, Elder Eva, being the perceptive gentleman that he is, was, uh, thought maybe it would be useful to get some input from the theological seminary at Andrews University. So he sent to uh, Andrews uh, the draft that they'd come up with, uh, and President Grady Smoot appointed a committee, of which Larry and I were both members, uh, to uh, look at it and, and respond to the request from the General Conference. Well, uh, academics are a bit arrogant. Does one dare say that in public? Uh, you, you can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, the committee there, where there were half a dozen of us, and we looked at the statement from the general conference and said, we can't fix this. Uh, it's not fixable. Uh, so we started over. And... Uh, this is how you and Larry ended up engaged in the very same project. You're both at Andrews University. You both looked at a statement, a document from the General Conference and said, we can do better. Let's get on it. And, and uh, now whether we did better or not is open to debate, but uh, we did uh, prepare a statement uh, which we then referred to the, uh, back to the General Conference and uh, the annual council in, what, uh, 1979, I think it was, voted to refer it, uh, even recommended it, to the general conference session at Dallas the following summer. And uh, that's where Larry, Larry was elected by the seminary faculty as the seminary representative in Dallas. Uh, at the general conference session. So and they took you to the meetings and they left you home. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's true. And I never regarded that as a disappointment. <laughs> uh, so Larry, what, what did you do? <laughs> oh. Oh, by the way, be before I turn the story over to Larry, I would, I would mention that the reason there ended up uh, to be 27 fundamental beliefs was that as secretary of the Andrews Committee, uh, I had the task of putting it into proper literary form, and I had the option of going somewhere between 26 and 28. And I thought, 26 is a really blah number. I mean, 2 times 13, who, who needs that? Now, 28's a little better, 4 times 7, uh, because both 4 and 7 are biblical numbers. Uh, but then I thought, 27, 3 times 3 times 3. 
the Trinity cubed, no less. <laughs> and so it was, 27 was obvious. I didn't have any choice. When people ask you how we got 27, this is the true truth. This, this, is, this is the story. Not, not uh, inspired, not uh, uh, divinely chosen, but uh, it just seemed to be kind of clever. <laughs> and we have ruined it by adding the 28th now. Yes, yes. That, that happened uh, about halfway between 1980 and now. Today. Mm -hmm. uh, when, uh, in response to uh, encouragement, even pressure, one hesitates to say that with church business, but uh, with the encouragement and the request of overseas divisions, Yes. who were dealing with uh, spiritual warfare issues and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Uh, what is now Article 17 uh, was added. So now there are 28. But back to 1980. So I was uh, part of Fritz's committee that he was secretary of, and I was assigned to draft some of these fundamental beliefs. And... Um, was surprised when the seminary faculty voted me as their representative to the general conference session. When I got to the Dallas, I was even more surprised to find out that the main thing we would be discuss discussing every day was these 27 fundamental beliefs. And I thought, you know, Fritz should have been here because he has been so involved. The be next best thing will be to stay in touch with him as we go through these. So each night I would call Fritz up and I would say, this is what we discussed today. This is how the suggestions that were made. This is what's on the docket for tomorrow. What do you suggest? How can I be helpful? And so we stayed in touch throughout the process. In addition to just being a representative, um, Neil Wilson appointed me to a small group that sat behind the curtain uh, on the stage while he chaired the session and acknowledged people and they came up to the microphones and made comments and so on, he sent these back to this little committee with the task of if there's possible to incorporate them or to, if they have a good idea that you haven't thought of, draft it in and uh, then send us, that, send us back what, you, what this little committee thinks should, should be uh, discussed. And so I was part of that little committee too. You spent a good deal of time behind a curtain. Right. Behind the general conference president. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and then you went home in the evening and you called Fritz a thousand right. miles away and right. a few other people, if we tell the truth. Right, There right. were some other voices. Right. And then you would come back to the business session the next day mm -hmm. and prepare an edited copy. Mm -hmm. And now we're in open session with over 2,000 delegates and they would talk about what you all came up with the night right. before last. Right. Right. Larry, can you say more about some of the language that you were very intentional, uh, the two of you, mind you, if you've never been a student in their class, words just matter. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> All the words are chosen for a reason. Can you speak specifically about the careful economy of words and um, the biblical selection of words? Well, you know, Fritz has been an editor uh, in his, as part of his profession in life, and so um, he gets the credit for uh, the way it came from Andrews to, to the General Conference. 
from the perspective of wordsmiths, many of the comments ruined the beautiful <laughs> words that were prepared. But we did it in the spirit of the whole church being involved. Absolutely, you know, it was very important that we did our best to express what the church believes. And we started with wording from scripture because we all affirm scripture and believe it to be inspired. Okay. And so if we could use the words of scripture and then at the end of the paragraph have the text upon which they were based, we felt that was the way to go. Can you reflect on the process when people didn't agree? Yes, the, uh, the committee at Andrews was a fairly small group, I think five or six of us, Larry. Uh, and we generally agreed, you know, being all Adventist seminary professors. Being all white men. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm going to say. Yeah, that, that I, is true. Wait, 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 wait. I'm going to say an honest conversation we had in the office last week. It's, it is easier to all agree when we're similar alike. Yes, and w although there was an attempt to get worldwide input, uh, the, a draft was circulated in February or March before the general conference session. Was, it was published in the Adventist Review, but it was published in English. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, the, the document suffered uh, from that kind of cultural mm -hmm. limitation or chauvinism, whatever you uh, want to call it. But uh, on the committee at Andrews, uh, there were very few times when we disagreed, and when we disagreed, um, we kept quiet. Hmm. The one example I remember is regarding whether or not unbaptized children should participate in communion. Uh, and some on the committee were very sure that they should not, and others were just as sure that they should. So, the final document says nothing about whether unbaptized children should or may participate uh, in communion. Another thing that needs to be said is that the most important part of the document voted in Dallas, I want to say under the guidance of Larry Garrity, but uh, anyway, the most, in my judgment, and this is a personal judgment, the most important part did not come from Andrews, but came from a delegate to the general conference session, Ron Graybill, mm. La Sierra alum, uh, and known to many of us here. Uh, and I still refer to this section as the Graybill preamble. And I want to take uh, yes. the time to read it. Uh, and remember, I, I referred earlier to a statement from 1872 about we don't have a creed and that sort of thing. Well, uh, Ron, as a church historian, was very conscious of this element of Adventist history. So, uh, he proposed this preamble. Seventh-day Adventists accept the Bible as their only creed and hold certain fundamental beliefs to be the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. These beliefs, as set forth here, constitute the church's understanding and expression of the teaching of Scripture. 
Revision of these statements may be expected at a general conference session when the church is led by the Holy Spirit to a fuller understanding of Bible truth or finds better language in which to express the teachings of God's holy word. He was perhaps, and this is just conjecture, also remembering a very important Ellen White comment, which is, whenever the people of God are growing in grace, they will be constantly obtaining a clearer understanding of his word. Right. This has been true in the history of the church in all ages, and thus it will continue to the end. So uh, the, the suggestion that these statements, these then 27 fundamental beliefs, could be revised, and they have been a couple of times. I mentioned one. Uh, another one was uh, in uh, just the last general conference session in 2015 uh, when the uh, paragraph six on creation was somewhat revised to specify a belief in a creation involving six literal days. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, talk, Larry, about the, towards the end of the week, I, I think it's fascinating that while you're doing all this thoughtful work on behalf of the church, a large and diverse church, you're also very human. And we got to Friday, and you were not done with the fundamental belief, the doctrine on the sanctuary. Right. Neil Wilson was in the chair. We were in our little committee in the back. And the very last doctrine that had yet to be uh, accepted, the description of it, before people went home to uh, get ready for Sabbath and to do their last shopping because people were going to be leaving Dallas for all parts of the earth, um, we couldn't agree on the wording in the sanctuary. And Neil Wilson sent notes back to us, hurry up get that voted. People are antsy. They want to leave. They want to go shopping. They want to get ready for Sabbath. Because Sabbath is coming. Did right. you hear that? They want to leave for Sabbath. <laughs> and so we had the wording that was presented that was much different from what the seminary faculty had sent them and included a number of phrases that are familiar to Adventists. And after Duncan Eva, who was chairing this little group, uh, read it. He said, can we vote on it? I said, if you read all the texts that we have at the end of this paragraph, could you get the statement out of those biblical texts? Silence. I said, does that bother anybody? It bothers me. This is not biblical. We don't have the text to prove what's in this. Elder Eva said, brother, the saints out there expect this wording. Let's vote it and let them go home. And that's how we got that doctrine. Because Sabbath was coming and because uh, we, we know what we like and what is comforting to us. I am impressed, and we've talked at length, about what it is to work on behalf of the denomination on a consensus document. 
can, uh, and it was more than what you imagined it to be. Once this was published, Fritz, you've, you referenced, uh, after the fact, you realized that this statement of beliefs began, began to be misused. Yes, yes, and I hope you're inviting me to tell a, a short story. Do that, and then I have a question for Larry. Thank uh, you. During, uh, during the process, uh, my good and longtime friend, Roy Branson, became aware that I was a member of this committee, which, as I said, had been appointed by the president of Andrews University. But Roy, who was the grandson of a general conference president and the son of the, what, New York conference president, uh, and had a long experience, well, lifetime within church and church politics and so on, and he sensed how a statement of fundamental beliefs could and would be misused. And he sent me a very stern letter berating me for being part of such a nefarious process that would end up doing so much harm. Now, uh, I didn't agree with him. I remained on the committee. And I think in the long run, such statements can do good, but they can also be misused. And this one that was voted in 1980, after Larry and his friends got through with it, uh, has been misused. There have been pastors who have lost their jobs, been fired, because they disagreed with their conference president's interpretation of the statement of fundamental beliefs. So it has been used as a creed. And one thing I must tuck in here, as we were working on it, we thought we were composing a statement that would be descriptive, not prescriptive. That's what we thought we were doing, yeah. but what we did ended up being used as a prescription. I'd like to tuck in here, to use your phrase, a statement by Loughborough, who said, and as you all know, he was one of the pioneers, the first step of apostasy is to get up a creed telling us what we shall believe. The second is to make that creed a test of fellowship. The third is to try members by that creed the fourth, to denounce as heretics those who do not believe that creed. And fifth, to commence persecution against such. Now that was an insight from our pioneer who didn't want to have creeds. And so Fritz and I and all the other people who were working on these certainly were not expecting to produce something that mm -hmm. would be used this way, but something that would correctly represent what most Adventists would believe. And n not a single one, you know, but the whole church. And so there was room for diversity in our thinking. And going back to our, our hope that we would use biblical language to which we could all agree. Now, as Fritz said, it's been changed, you know, at the last general conference session. One of the good things was that they used inclusive language. Right. You know, back in 1980, we hadn't been that smart. Yeah. But 
as a result of the, the last San Antonio meeting, we have inclusive language, it's much better. But from my perspective, they've also ruined some things by tucking in words that are not biblical. Just to illustrate that, you know, the sixth statement on creation, this is what was adopted back in 1980. God is creator of all things and has revealed in scripture the authentic account of his creative activity. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all living things upon the earth and rested on the seventh day and thus established the Sabbath as a perpetual memorial of his completed creative work. So that was using biblical language. Now the, the new uh, one that has been changed says this, God has revealed in scripture the authentic and historical account. Theologians would say this is a theological document, not a historical document. Mm -hmm. they, they put in historical. He created the universe. That's something they added. We don't think, I don't think that Genesis 1 is a story about the universe. We've learned so much more about what the universe is. Then it says, in a recent six-day creation. Where do you get that in the Bible? They stuck that in. And he established the Sabbath as a perpetual memorial of the work he performed and completed during six literal days. That's not what the Bible says. See, the advantage of the original document is that it's biblical language. I, Here they've stuck in all these words that, from my perspective, ruins it. I remember very clearly you going to the microphone at the sessions right. and hearing an opinion about like this. We, we are wrapping up. I would like for you to address how is it you can work on a consensus document on behalf of a worldwide church and, and uh, end up with a product where you may differ with mm -hmm. some of what you write or what gets voted. I think I speak for Fritz too. We're Adventists from our mother's milk. We love the church. We would never be any place else. And so when the church asks us to do something, we do our best and we try to, to be faithful um, and incorporate the suggestions that come. And so we, we respect the fact that we're a world church. We want to stay together and we do our best. How have you reconciled producing a document where you may have some differences? Well, it, as I said, we thought we were, and I believe we were, uh, de uh, doing a description of what Adventists generally believe. Uh, and I think we did a pretty good job of that. But Never dreaming that there would be compliance committees appointed to make sure that we individually believed what the church says they believe. Yes, the, the current <laughs> emphasis on unity, yes. meaning we all say the same thing. Yes. Uh, I mean, that never entered our minds. We, uh, we thought, as I said, this was a descriptive document. We even used the language truth in advertising. Mm -hmm. Somebody asks you, uh, Pastor Chris, what, what in the world do Adventists believe anyway? Yes. You could hand them this and yes. say, well, this is what most Adventists around the world believe. Yes. You said uh, in the office last week, um, this is what I guess we could say a typical Adventist believes, but what on earth is a typical Adventist anyway? 
<laughs> thank you. We want to thank you for your service. These are lives of service to the church, and you do not stop. To this very day, to this very week, both of you do not stop in your commitment and your service of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Thank you. These uh, are the minutes of that general conference session right here because maybe one person in the room cares. I've read most of them. It's fascinating uh, how Fritz and Larry's memory tracks with these daily bulletins. Thank you for your reflections this morning and I will say another word about them when we conclude. Now so that you're not worried, it's 11.55, this is not a 45 minute sermon. Lunch will be ready for you soon. As we prepare to open the scriptures, can I invite you to stand for the reading of the word and we will read together our scripture reading. Actually, I will read it to you because it's rather longer. This comes from 1 Kings chapter 21, our reading of the word. Naboth from Jezreel had a vineyard in Jezreel that was next to the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. The reading of the word is coming. <laughs> we're gonna pause while we're all standing. Maybe we'll do it the old fashioned way. First Kings chapter, nine, uh, chapter 21, beginning with verse one. I'm gonna read it to you from my Bible here. This is the new revised version. Sometime later, there was a uh, citadel involving a vineyard that belonged to Naboth. Naboth the Jezreel. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard. No, wait, I will even pay you silver. What is your land worth? But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give it to you. This is an inheritance of my father's. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreel had said, I, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. The king lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked to him, what are you so sullen for? Why won't you eat? He answered, because I had asked Naboth the Jezreel, sell me your vineyard, and, and if you prefer, I would give you another vineyard, or I would pay you. And he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel said, is this how you act as a king over Israel? Get up, eat, cheer up. I paraphrase, I will go get you your vineyard. This is the reading of the word. Thanks be to God for the reading of this word. I invite you to be seated today. So we have in our scripture passage today a spoiled king and a scary queen and a, a spoiled 
king, a scary queen, a determined farmer, and two deceitful witnesses. And we throw in a prophet of the Lord. This is the makings for a good opera. Listen, Anthony and uh, Daphne, if I had understood, we would have you sing an opera about this today. This is all the makings of a good opera. There's deceit and there's lying and there's grasping for what is not ours. It is dark and comical and a wee bit over the top. The story of King Ahab and his queen Jezebel. We've just set, uh, read the setup here together. Why can't Ahab have what he wants? In fact, in the first verse of the story, the storyteller makes it abundantly clear if we only read the first verse, we could see Naboth from Jezreel had a vineyard in Jezreel which was next to the palace of the king of Samaria. The text could simply say, Ahab wants Naboth's vineyard. He cannot have it because it belongs to Naboth's family. It's inheritance, this is part of the covenant between Naboth and God. This is ancestral land rights and ownership. The first sentence front loads the story for us, church. Two or three times we're told here in one sentence, the problem is large. Ahab cannot have this land. Naboth cannot surrender. He doesn't have the right to surrender because he's in a covenant with God. The king is not ignorant of this. The king understands this rule. This is the nation of Israel's rule. The king knows. This is why he says, give it to me or, or wait, I'll buy it from you. I'll give you another piece of land. I'll trade with you. Naboth won't sell. The king cries to the queen. Now, depending upon your Bible translation, it will say he pouts, he cries, he whines, he's sullen, he lays in his bed, he faces the wall, he won't eat. Depending on your Bible translation, Je uh, Jezebel says to her king, why do you not take bread? Aren't you the one who rules Israel? Get up, eat something, cheer up. I'll go get Naboth's vineyard myself. While the king pouts, the queen plays. Friends, she plays at the frontiers of her power, just at the edges of her power. She devises a plan. The next verses from verses eight through 14 tell us how she does this. She writes a letter with the king's pen, with the king's seal. She decides to set up a fast table to get two witnesses who will come and tell a lie about Naboth. They have to bear witness that Naboth has somehow blasphemed Yahweh. And when that happens, they can take him outside, they can stone him, they can kill him. Now if he dies discredited, ah, oh, the king can have his land. If he just dies, the land goes back to the family, but if he dies discredited, she plots a plan, playing at the frontiers of her power. This is precisely what happens. They find the two witnesses, they have the meal, they accuse Naboth of blasphemy, they take him outside, they stone him mercilessly, the Bible says here, and he dies. The land is now free and they take it. The men of the city followed her instructions. Please note that part of our story this morning, church. Before they can have a fattened calf and throw a party, however, the prophet shows up in the story with a word from the Lord. The prophet says something like this, not so fast. 
And now because you've done this, you will die. And you won't just die with stones. Dogs will eat at your bones and flesh and will lick the blood off the ground. It's a gruesome description of what will happen to the king because of this act. Vultures will tear at your bones and dogs will lick the blood. And this is actually biblical language. They stayed the execution because Ahab repented. What do you know? He repents. And so they say, we won't kill your family. We'll wait and kill your descendants. And sure enough, in the next act, that happens. It's a happy little story before lunch, isn't it? People playing on the frontiers of their power. It's a good story for all of us. How often during your weeks and months of your lifetime are you enticed to play at the edges of your power? In your homes and in our relationships with our friends, in our communities, at work, in our church, in our nation as citizens. How often are we tempted to play at the frontiers of our power, tempted to exploit someone else for our own game? There's a manipulated, exploited process the queen has put into place. It is the essence of the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Don't even think it at all begins inside in a summary of the 10 commandments in Exodus, the book of Exodus. Don't even think it in these internal thoughts to reach past what belongs to you. Don't think of the spouse and the house next door. Don't think of the land and the crops and the goods. Don't think of the relationships. Don't think of your own life in their space in any way. Don't even think it. The Ten Commandments have warned about moments like this. Don't covet. It'll be way into the Middle Ages when coveting and this kind of reach for power will be called one of the deadly sins. King Ahab and his queen wife Jezebel show us that playing at the edges of our power, playing at the frontier where we're so tempted to cross over and do harm to another, that doing this, when we do this, life unravels and relationships unravel. It turns out that societies organize themselves first and primarily by relationships, second by rules. The rules for the nation of Israel have always been to shine a light on the relationship. That's what the rules have always been for. Doing wrong against one another is also then doing wrong against God. In the words of the contemporary author, Robin Myers, he says it this way, that we can live separate from one another is our deadliest illusion. In other words, we can't live separate from one another. So can we talk for a moment before lunch about the relationships in this story in 1 Kings 21? We could talk about the king. More than one author has reflected that kings are takers. That's all human kings are. But listen, the king in Israel knows better. Psalms 107, Psalms 72 describe the king's great responsibility for all who live in his territory. It is the king's task to make sure the poor are fed, to make sure people have land and that the crops grow. It is the king's task to protect from the enemy and oppressors. The king is not allowed to become an oppressor. Ahab must know this. Human kings are takers, but Ahab should know better. We could talk about the king and his relationships. We could talk about Jezebel and her relationships. 
I asked my sister yesterday, what do you know about Jezebel? We grew up Adventist, fourth, fifth generation Adventist. She says to me, isn't that the one that wears all the makeup? (laughs) Yes, that's what I was taught to. And jewelry, yes, that's her, ding, 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 ding. We could talk about Jezebel and her relationships, friends. Jezebel, who's part of an arranged marriage. She's from Phoenicia, different part of the land, worships different different gods and goddesses, including Baal. We could talk about her, the daughter of a king herself. We could talk about where she grows up. Kings absolutely do get what they want. You don't have to ask anybody. It turns out that when their parents arranged this marriage, it's great foreign policy, it's just lousy spiritual policy. Jezebel represents everything Israel wants out of their midst. Jezebel, if they could get her out. We could talk about Jezebel then. Turns out over the centuries we have, and instead of a character, she's become a caricature. Isn't she the one with all the eye makeup and the jewelry and the temptress? If Deborah is the example of positive power for Israel, Jezebel is all that is not. We could talk about Jezebel this morning and I would prefer the kinder narrative if we did. Jezebel the scapegoat for the nation of Israel. We could talk about Naboth and Naboth's friends, and actually these are the relationships I'm the most interested this morning. Naboth who stands up to the king and the queen and says, you cannot have my property. Here's the question that I have. Where are Naboth's friends? Where are the leaders and the elders, the city officials? How is it that Jezebel enticed all of them to come along with her plan, friends? Where are Naboth's friends and leaders? Where are the people with whom he goes to temple and makes sacrifice? The people who live in his village, who get water at the same well, the people who shop in the same market side by side with him. The king and the queen have their foot on Naboth's neck. Where are his leaders? You mean all of Israel would obey Jezebel? That's the relationship I'm interested this fresh reading. I'm taking my cue from Walter Brueggemann who says, when we read these stories in the scripture, it is less about a great warning for all of us and it's more to imagine other possibilities. Choices that we all have. Walter Brueggemann says that there, there are, there's, these are testimonies to otherwise. There is another way the story could play out. It would only take one man from Israel, one man in the village, one person could have been the hero of this story. What happened to the community of the faithful this day that Jezebel had this much power? Where were his friends? Eventually Jesus will summarize all of this later in the gospel story. It really is our relationships that matter. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, your soul, your heart, your whole being, and love your neighbor as yourself. It is about honoring one another. The Apostle Paul will say a variety of ways. We are all the body of Christ. Honor the body. Honor one another. Where were the people 
when Jezebel was playing at the frontiers of her power. There are choices, demanding choices, for those of us who choose to live a life of faith, who choose to follow after our Jesus. A thousand choices as the days and months and years go by to stand when someone's got their neck crushed on the ground. Risky choices, long-suffering choices, glorious choices. It turns out the Bible is an incredible witness of these inglorious moments of the people of God. And I'm learning that inglorious moments with the people of God are made less traumatic by glorious moments with the people of God. Glorious moments. Fritz and Larry have told us about one general conference session that actually was not too traumatic. If you were to read through the Adventist Review stack that I have here, it's kind of a charming list of bulletins day by day. This is the year that Neil Wilson was elected General Conference President. He stepped in midterm before for Elder Pearson, but this is the year he's elected. On the opening day, they read a welcome from President Jimmy Carter to the Seventh-day Adventist Christians gathered in Dallas. And Jimmy Carter commends us for our humanitarian efforts. This general conference session in 1980, it took 33 subcommittees four years. Oh my word. Thank you that some people have that spiritual gift. This is the year they added big screens to the side of the stadium platform so we could see what was happening with cameras. This is the year we became people of the screen. There are charming stories that like they need to fetch people from the airport who don't speak English so they send two women and they, they give them an Adventist review and think if the women go to the airport and wave an Adventist review that any Adventist in the airport would recognize them and that's their ride back to the convention center. Turns out that they waved their Adventist review and the passengers they were waiting for didn't see them but they picked up a whole carload of delegates. There are long conversations about the church manual, long suffering, actually just kind of boring in the end, conversations about the church manual. There are important things like tobacco, we shouldn't smoke it, but yes, someone rises to say, we shouldn't grow it either, but someone rises to say, where we live, when we grow it, this is our crop, someone from the Philippines rises to say, where we live, we don't have a choice, this is the crop we're forced to grow. Someone rises to say, well, maybe we should include in the wording that we shouldn't sell it. Someone rises to say, are you meaning to tell me if I'm a young adult and I work at a store and someone wants to buy cigarettes for me, I should say to them, I cannot sell this to you. I am a Seventh-day Adventist. The minutes are full of small moments like this. A long conversation about the work of the youth. They want to add it to the church manual and one named Lou Vinden rises to say, it's a very basic question I ask, why should all of this be in the church manual? And then there's another one named Wallace Minder. Where are you, Wally? There's one named Wallace Minder who rises after Lou Vinden and says, Brother Chairman, I agree. This is a lot of information and it seems to me that this is premature. And then they go on to keep talking about it for an hour. Eventually, one named Wallace Minder rises again and says, Mr. Chair, I move that we refer this back to the committee. This is not ready to be voted. The chairman says to Wallace, 
Did you mean refer it back to the committee today or for five years from now? Dr. Minder says, I mean to refer it back. <laughs> so great. <laughs> I can see you doing that, Wally, and you sit down. Mic drop. It turns out what Fritz and Larry represent about 1980 seems to be true that it is full of kind of small and glorious moments that they're able to navigate together as they take on one of their most important tasks in the history of our denomination, trying to say what we think we believe about our God and being in God's story in this world. When you read the the notes from the General Conference Executive Committee the month after Dallas in 1980, they have a lovely little paragraph that says that, uh, that they believe the most, among the most satisfying outcomes in Dallas was the rigorous and healthy dialogue of the fundamental beliefs. So Adventist Forum, those of you who are guests today, we thank you because this is largely what you've been committed to rigorous and healthy dialogue for Seventh-day Adventist Christians. Rigorous and healthy dialogue so all of our voices could be heard. They've been small, glorious little conversations scattered throughout the 50 years and they help make the inglorious moments a little less traumatic. We thank you for your contribution to the ongoing conversations even today. Today, when we find ourselves in a little bit more of an inglorious space in our church's history, yes, conversations about governance and discipline, long wrestling match over the discrimination of one gender in the work of pastoral ministry, it feels like we're in a little more of an inglorious space right now as we lead up to October and an important meeting happening in the general conference. La Sierra Church members, if you want to read more about this, if some of you have no idea what I'm speaking about, maybe that's actually a good idea. But it also occurs to me, read the statement on our website, on our church Facebook page, as our Pacific Union leadership team chose this week to exercise its conscience and speak to power that seems to be playing on the frontiers that could do damage. Dr. Thompson said this morning in his 8.30 homily, Adventist Christians are free to think about anything, to dream and to imagine. Dr. Kendra Holoviak-Valentine said in her Sabbath school presentation, what seems to be at risk night right now is will we as a church become more authoritarian or more adventurous? I heard one of the leaders from one of the little coastal towns where Hurricane Florence is threatening today, even. This was on Tuesday or so. The reporter asked one of these local leaders, a mayor of a small town, the question was, tell us how you interface with FEMA when the crisis comes. And the mayor looked a little bit puzzled and said to the reporter, well, we live here. FEMA doesn't. We know our roads, we know our community, we know the inlets, we know the sounds, we know where the danger points are. To be very candid, it would be silly for FEMA to come here and tell us how to solve the situation. Yes. 
one of the historians in the group, if you could find for me the time when Ellen White says to the people in Oakland who are going to call Battle Creek for help with something, she says to them, are there no thinking men in Oakland? You don't need to call Battle Creek. This is a summary of the inglorious moment we find ourselves in here. But what I really want to say to you as a local church pastor is so much of this doesn't matter. Our students are arriving on Monday. The freshman class is coming. And these are things we don't really talk about, especially with our students who are just learning about Adventism because the underbelly of the church is rather dark. So much of what's happening at the frontiers of abusive power don't matter in the rhythm and the life of a community. We have five graduate students, five students needing scholarships to get into school in a week. If you want to sponsor them, call me. So much of what we're embroiled in right now simply doesn't matter. One day last month, the church office had three crisis phone calls. It's a senior citizen who's been left alone. Can the church please come? It's a young adult who's in crisis in one city and a, an alumni of our institution who's a, in crisis in a very far city. Friends, so much of what we're embroiled in right now has nothing to do with the regular rhythm and the life of a congregation. 4,800 units short in the city of Riverside for affordable housing. These are the things we're working on in the local church. All in the midst of pain and trauma and the loss, the death of two of our sisters in the last 24 hours. The local church knows how to be the local church. Fritz and Larry, your multiple glorious contributions over this, the decades are so noted. Not only what you did in 1980, but what you do in the rhythms of our congregation here. Your small and glorious contributions make these inglorious moments less chaotic. Fritz, that I can go to my bookshelf and pull a book down, and it will be inscribed to my pastor. Read this, then let's talk. <laughs> it's not one book in 10 years. It's not 10 books in 10 years. That I could sit in your classroom and we could see you pull everyone up from the corners of the table, make everyone sit around the middle and you would say to the class, there are no back rows in my classroom. Everyone sits at the table. Glorious moments. Larry, I could tell so many to call you on Thursday night and for us to step into the Bramlett home together but I want to tell you about one in 2005. In case it hasn't been told, Adventist Forum, friends, I want you to hear. Because these are the long conversations you work on. In 2005, I joined our executive committee for the Pacific Union. I wasn't really thinking about what that meant. I showed up at Pacific Union College in the fireside room. I found my seat between Dr. Garrity and his brother-in-law, Dr. Osborne. I thought there's no better place to sit in this room. I'm going to learn how to be a good committee member. <laughs> what I didn't know that day is that Pastor Devo's name and my name were on the agenda to be approved for ordination. This was June 2005. 
This was the middle of the week. We would have that meeting and we would come home, have the ordination here on Sabbath afternoon. We would march in a commencement exercise on Sunday for graduate degrees. This is that week. I didn't know when we opened up the agenda that my name would be there. I also didn't really understand that there would be two lists. The women would be listed here and the men would be listed here. The women would be getting commissioned and the men would be getting ordained and I was a senior lead pastor in Cala Mesa. I didn't understand what I was walking into. So as we got to this part of the agenda, Larry Garrity said, Mr. Chair, I would like to say something before we vote on these credentials. I'm noticing the names of two pastors that I happen to know, Pastor Devo Kritzinger and Pastor Chris Oberg. They're both students from our university. They will both march in a graduation ceremony this weekend. They've both had about the similar amount of experience working for the church, and they've both have skill sets that serve the church well. I notice that Pastor Devo's name is on the right side and Pastor Oberg's name is on the left side of this paper. And you should know that she's a senior pastor. I notice that on the left side of the paper where the women's names are listed, it says, we move to acknowledge these women by commissioning them. And on the right side of the paper, it says, we move to authorize these men. This is what Dr. Garrity notices and says, I think we can do better than that with our language. Aren't we authorizing all of them? There was a long pause after a three minute speech from Larry and I know because I kept the minutes and I wrote his speech down word for word. He stopped speaking, the room fell silent. It fell silent for a long time and then the chair said, well, okay then, are we ready to vote? And we voted, and we broke for lunch. I wasn't able to return that day because I didn't realize how heavy that would feel. When this committee got together again in November, the minutes were, the agenda was presented, the names for credentials. We acknowledge these men and these women for service in the church. It was one small glorious speech, one small glorious adjustment. It all happened behind closed doors. We never talked about it again as a committee. Nothing was ever said, but it was one of those small glorious steps necessary to get us into the future. Larry and Fritz, for the glorious moments you've brought us that make the inglorious feel less traumatic, we are so grateful. We learn from our reading from the Old Testament today that playing at the edges of the frontier of power can be quite dangerous. It will take all of us all of the faithful to be willing to stand with Naboth. It will take all of us willing to question the inglorious moments as we find our way towards God's future, friends. To those of you at the Adventist Forum, to our La Sierra family, may the glorious moments come quicker, more abundantly, while we wait for the future that God hopes we can step into together. Amen.